in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. So a lot of people don't know this story uh, in Galatians 2 because a different name than we're used to is used. But in the early church, there was a moment when the early church was just seconds away from essentially failing or dissolving or winding up in oblivion by following the way of the world in the way in which it was then. There's a moment in Antioch when the early church, which had agreed on paper that Gentiles and Jews were equal and that all were saved by the blood of Christ and all were now equal in the family of faith. They agreed to that on paper. But years later, some of the people in Jerusalem came to Antioch to see what was going on. And even though things had all been figured out, the old pressures were still there and old habits die hard. And so when this sort of conservative faction from Jerusalem got up to Antioch in a mostly Gentile church, they would not sit with the non-Jews. They would not sit with the Gentiles. And they imagine this, right? It's the biggest church in the early church. And these Jews come from Jerusalem, kind of the main first church, and they won't sit with the locals. They're going to all sit off on their own. This isn't a language thing. This isn't just like you hang out with your friends. This is a purity thing. These Gentiles were not worthy of the Jews sitting next to them. So they go and they sit in the corner by themselves because they're not going to have table fellowship with the Gentiles. And that might not seem like that big of a thing until we maybe get into this. But at that moment, if nothing would have happened and this would have been the established way of the church, that would have been the end of the Christian church. It may have survived a few generations. It may have survived in Jerusalem or in its own sort of Gentile way, but it would never would have become this massive behemoth that it is now, except for our Paul, who we're following in our St. Paul in St. Paul series. He stood up, and this is the only recorded rebuke ever in the early church leveled at one of the three pillars of the church. You've got Peter, you've got James, and you've got John. And Paul stands up, not in the Jewish custom of like taking someone aside and talking to him. He stands up and he rebukes Peter in front of hundreds of people. Okay, that's not something you come back from easily. He gets up and he rebukes Peter in front of hundreds of people. And to Peter's credit, he realizes that Paul is right. And if that would not have happened, I don't think there would be a Christian church today where Paul challenges him. So we'll get into the specifics. That is the principal argument of the early church. And fortunately, people realized Paul was right. And that is why we, predominantly of Gentile ancestry, can all be here today as equal members of the church. So let me dive into this. When you think of racial reconciliation, you probably don't think of the early church. You're thinking of, you know, the civil rights movement or Martin Luther King Jr., issues of modern racism and the fight to right the wrongs or sort of reverse some of the sins of the past. But in the early church, that was its primary issue. Its primary drama for 30 to 50 years was principally a racial issue. So for a thousand years, non-Jews or Gentiles were second-class citizens. One scholar points out that Jews might do business with them, but they'd never be business partners with them. Uh, they might be friends with them, but they would never intermarry with them. Uh, it's not all that, it's not the same, but it's not all that unlike some of the issues, especially in the American South, not all that long ago. I heard a story recently from a prominent pastor in Minneapolis, John Piper, who you've probably heard of. He tells a story of, of being raised in, I think it was South Carolina, in a very sort of segregationist South still. And he tells the story of having a cleaner. They had a maid that would come a couple times a week and help keep their house in order who was black. 
Uh, and they loved this person. They got to know her well, and she was sort of like a nanny, uh, almost a maternal or aunt figure. And so when someone in the family was going to get married, I think maybe Piper's older sister or something, was about to get married, the family invited her and her family to the wedding in you know, pre-1960s segregationist South Carolina. And so all of the folks start showing up for the wedding. And as you can imagine, all of the prominent white people are sort of put up in front in this church. And all of a sudden, this black maid and her family shows up. And there's this sort of murmur that goes throughout the entire church. And uh, John Piper tells the story in his book, Bloodlines, that he was one of the ushers. So essentially, it was his decision where this family sat. You know, at a wedding, the usher shows you to your seat. And so there's this huge crisis because he knew what the right thing was, but he did not have the guts to do it. He was like Peter in this moment where there's this sort of conservative faction around you and he sort of followed. So everyone was kind of murmuring that this black family should sit up in the balcony by themselves while all the white people are in the true sanctuary on the main level. And Piper capitulated to that. He knew it was wrong, but he wasn't about to push against what people were saying. So as he starts leading this family up the stairs, his own mother gets involved. I just love this, like the justice of a woman, right? His mother gets involved, cuts him off, and ushers this black family right to the front of the church. And of course, now looking back, he realizes this is the most beautiful and right thing to do. It'd be interesting to ask him what he thinks about her having authority over men in that position, actually. But so clearly, it was, uh, it was recognized to be the right move. And so I want to tell that story to, it's not the same kind of racial issue. There's no history of slavery necessarily in the early church with this kind of same, these same dynamics. But this is what's going on. These are racial issues that you can imagine in South Carolina when that black family shows up, the whole tenor in the church, just the the tension level just completely changed in the same way when the Jews show up at that Gentile church, everyone's kind of like, well, they won't, they will they? And then they go sit in the corner on their own that's the same kind of tension, the same kind of like room hushing tension that you can imagine in South Carolina is happening there. So uh, when, uh, let's rewind a little bit. When, when the Christians were first being persecuted, partly by Saul, Paul, and then and others, they fled in all sorts of directions. And one of the largest concentrations of them wound up in Antioch, the city we're talking about. It had 200, see if you can follow this. It had 250,000 people. Anyone know the population of St. Paul? Dustin, do you know it? It's, it's a little higher, but it's very close. It's like some, on, on the sign, I think I've said seen 370, but I, I checked Wikipedia, it said 306. So I think it's 306,000. So let's just say about the same population in Antioch then as to St. Paul now. But see if you can do some quick math here. In St. Paul, we have 56 square miles, 56 to house that many people. In Antioch, they had five miles to house the same number of people. So what's 50, math, 56 divided by five, what are we looking at here, 11? So do the, do the math on the population density. We have 5,000 people, 5,500 people per square mile that live in this city, which we house pretty effectively. But all of a sudden you have 10, you have one tenth the space to house the same number of people. And this city of Antioch actually had the same population density, give or take just a pinch, it had the same population density as Manhattan in New York City but this is an ancient city, right? They don't have 40-story towers to pack all those people in. With ancient technology, brick, you know, mud buildings and wood, the best they could get was about four stories. Uh, A lot of people don't know that in the ancient world, they lived in apartments four or five stories tall in the cities because the wood apartments haven't lasted. So when you go see the ruins, you don't see these apartments, but they lived in four or five-story walk-ups, just like a lot of people do today. And a lot of people don't know that. Uh, So they lived in these four-story 
incredibly small walk-ups, but they had about 100 to 200 square feet per person. Wealthier people, or sorry, per family. Wealthier families had 200 square feet, so the whole family lived in one room. Poorer families had either nothing or 100 square feet. So you get, you know, five, six, seven people in 100 square feet. There's no kitchen, there's no bathroom, just like a little dwelling, basically. So that is Antioch, one of the largest and certainly one of the most densest cities, or the densest, one of the densest cities in the known world. And it's an absolute melting pot. It's right on the, the Silk Roads. Everyone from everywhere in the world is going through there. And so uh, it makes sense that in this sort of multi-ethnic and the multi-racial issues that were happening in the early church, there were tensions all around. Everyone was asking these questions about Gentile-Jew relations, but it makes sense that these things would come to a head in Antioch first because it's the densest, largest, most just melting pot city uh, in the ancient world. All right, this says, uh, let's read from scripture here. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So you have to read between the lines some here to see what's going on. So the Jerusalem church is the original, you could say, Rome. It's sort of the original, most important church. It's where Jesus was was killed and, and rose again. And that's where all the disciples are. It's got the most authority, at least for the first 15 years or so. And then all of a sudden, this crazy movement starts happening in Antioch. And you have to read between the lines here, but pretty, everyone's pretty much agreed on this, that the sort of conservative faction in the Jerusalem church was a little bit like excited, but also just maybe a little bit worried about, hey, what's, what's going on up there? Let's send someone to check it out. But let's not send like a bruiser. Let's just send someone who's nice, right? And so they look to Barnabas, whose actual name is Joseph, but they called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was just a really encouraging, nice guy. He was from Cyprus. So he was a Jew and fully got what the Jerusalem church's interests were, but he was also, he had spent his whole life among Gentiles. So he's just really comfortable in Greek culture, like Antioch. They thought, well, hey, this is a nice guy. He's a son of encouragement. We can send him up there and he will figure out what's going on and he'll be gentle. Um, And so they send him up and it says, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God, see if you can, if you can read between the lines as to what's going on. Try to imagine this in your head. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Uh, so here, I just, you'll have to listen. The between the lines thing is the next passage, I forgot. So uh, imagine you're in the South again. Imagine it's 100 years ago. Segregation is everything. It's been everywhere. And you walk into this church of blacks and whites sitting together. So imagine you're in the South, but then you sort of walk into some sort of modern, multiracial, multiethnic church with uh, blacks and whites just sitting amongst each other as equals. Imagine the shock to Barnabas of seeing Jews and Gentiles in the same area. So this big Jewish church sends their friendliest guy to see what's going on. And then you see all these Jews and Gentiles just sort of in the same church. And then what's funny is, see if you can then read between this line. It says, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Okay, so it doesn't really tell us much else. He gets there. He's sent from Jerusalem. He sees all of this sort of interracial, multi-ethnic mixture. And it doesn't say what. He didn't teach them. He didn't talk. He didn't write letters to Jerusalem. He didn't go back home to visit Jerusalem or back to where he was coming from. 
It says immediately, he basically takes off to go find, after 10 years of obscurity, right? Where there was 10 lost years. We don't know what happened with Paul really during those years. But Barnabas knew he needed to go find this Saul, Paul character. So he takes off on foot to go over to Tarsus to find Paul. So you get the sense here that Barnabas is totally and completely overwhelmed. For a thousand years, Jews had not intermingled with Gentiles. And now the biggest church in the Christian movement is essentially a split, a complete multi-ethnic milieu. And Barnabas is not, let's say, the sharpest leader in the shed. He's not the sharpest theologian. He does not know what to do. So he sees it, he gets scared off, and he walks for two weeks to go to Tarsus to find Saul. So why did he go to find Saul? It had been 10 years But what had happened 10 years earlier in Damascus must have made enough of an impression that he remembers him. And so Barnabas thinks, how in the world do I deal with this Jewish Gentile issue? Well, I remember that guy, that sort of hot-headed persecutor turned propagator of the faith. And I remember we sent him to Tarsus. I haven't talked to him in 10 years, but there must have been rumors. There must have been stories coming out of Cilicia and Tarsus of churches being planted or the ministry happening there. I don't, we don't think Saul was just sitting and working on tents in obscurity for 10 years. He was doing ministry that we just don't have record of. But Barnabas seems to know that he knows what he's doing and is doing it well. So um, Barnabas shows up in this church and I'm sure all of the people had all these questions for him that scared him off. There would have been Hebraic Jews, Hellenic Jews, God-fearing Gentiles and other curious onlookers all excited about this crucified and risen Messiah and what does it mean for them as a Hebraic Jew? What does it mean for me as a, as a Greek-speaking Jew? What does it mean for me as a God-fearer from the nations? Uh, and Barnabas maybe would not have known. There would have been a lot of tension. Even though the Holy Spirit was holding it together, there was maybe this sense that that wouldn't continue for long. And so the conservatives in that group would have been very angry with the others. Why are these Gentiles not observing the law? Why are the men not getting circumcised? Why are they eating pork? All of these issues. Uh, The others, the the more progressive or sort of Greek group would have been furious with the conservatives. Why do they draw away and why are they eating separately or why are they judging us for this and that? Why are they acting like they are superior to us? And again, the Holy Spirit was holding it together, but I think there was this sense that they needed to figure some stuff out uh, because eventually the Spirit would would allow them to figure things out. Uh, And Barnabas doesn't even try He'd been on the road for days, sees what's going on, and just gets out of town, hightails it out of there, uh, because this was so beyond his capability. And uh, the rest of the church figured this out really quick. I think when Barnabas brings Saul back, Barnabas is named first, like twice or something like that. So in the ancient church, you can always tell who the more important person is normally in an interchange, because they get named first. So when when Barnabas brings Saul back, he gets named first like twice. And then for the rest of the entire story, Barnabas always gets named after Paul. So they figured it out pretty quick too. Um, All right, so he remembered Saul. uh, He remembered and he'd heard all these, you know, things about the churches he was leading, whatever. Um, And so he needs to go fetch Saul. Uh, So he gets him, walks two, two weeks on foot, gets Saul. And somehow he's able to convince him to leave whatever projects he's doing and come to Antioch. And he shows up fit to teach, lead, and help this largest and densest of the early church's cities. Now, uh, all of Paul's missionary journeys start from there. Essentially, the modern, or or what we think of as the missionary movement, all starts from there. 
Um, I study the history of missions and the spread of the gospel through time and culture in Antioch. This church is ground zero. Uh, the pattern they set is still largely how mission happens today. So the church prays, the church sends, um, the mission, then these missionaries train, teach, convert, lift up locals, and then pass off leadership, right? Rather than showing up and like leading everything for them, missionaries train, lift up locals, pass off leadership to them, lay hands on them, and then the missionaries get out of town so that the locals can keep leading. That pattern was set by Antioch, and 2,000 years later, it's still happening today. So that's what's happening there. It's where all of Paul's journeys start from. And if, it, if, if you could say that Paul had a sending church, a home church, that's, that's the one. That's the one. He's in Rome. He's doing good work, but he's looking back to Antioch and sending letters to let them know how it's going. You're right, like you ever get uh, missionary support letters, right? Or missionary newsletters like, hey, here's how the ministry's going. Antioch is receiving those letters, so to speak. All right, so Jerusalem gets wind of not only the success in the church there, but of these missionary efforts to go all over the Mediterranean world. And it seems a bit curious, and, and maybe they're a little bit worried, uh, because for 15 years, they've been the most important church in the region. And all of a sudden, now Paul is writing these letters from Antioch, and they're sending out these missions, and all these churches are growing all over the Mediterranean, and they're not looking to Jerusalem for answers. They're looking to Antioch, right? They're not asking Peter and James and John. They're asking Paul and Antioch for teaching, for letters. That's how we get Galatians. That's how we get some of these early letters. And so you get a sense that maybe the Jerusalem church is a little bit wounded, right? That, hey, you know, we're kind of the, the main, we're the big cheeses around here. Why is Antioch kind of becoming this big leader, this, this big movement? The gravity, the anchor of the early Christian church is maybe shifting to Antioch. So you sense this hostility. And they'd hashed out these issues before between Jews and Gentiles, that Jesus had died for both. And on paper, they were in full agreement. But like I said, those old habits die hard. And for a thousand years, they had been on unequal footing. And so that still culturally is a strong value. Just like with the civil rights movement, you can have equal laws on paper. And here we are 60 years later, and you full well know things are better than they were, but they're still not fixed, right? You can have laws on paper. You can have agreements on paper but not actually have full heart change. And that's what the Jerusalem church is dealing with. So they show up in Antioch to kind of see what's going on. Hey, you know, we're Jerusalem and you guys are kind of becoming this leader church of the entire Mediterranean. So we're going to send a delegation to figure out what's going on. And I'm sure everything was spoken well of like, hey, we just want to come encourage you and see what's going on. But everyone in the room knows there's this kind of detective aspect going on. Like, are you guys in the right, you know, what's, what's going on up here? So the Jews show up, the sort of Hebraic Christian Jews, and they follow the customs they've always followed, which is to not eat with Gentiles and to treat them like second-class citizens. And the peer pressure is strong. Peter, who had been an equal among Gentiles and eating with them for years, succumbs to this peer pressure, right? He was raised uh, an ethnic Jew. He was raised in this sort of Pharisaic tradition. And even Barnabas does the same. So when these conservative Jews show up, peer pressure is strong, and everyone kind of goes over to the Jewish table, you could say. Almost anybody else would have felt this awkward tension, would have wondered in private what they should do. <laughs> Not Paul, right? Paul, you get the sense he didn't even let it go on for a minute. He stood up immediately and rebukes Peter in front of the whole gathering, and he calls him a hypocrite. I mean, it doesn't get much stronger than this. The early pillars of the church were Peter, James, and John. Remember when Jesus said, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock, right, on this Petra, on, the, on this rock, I will build my church. <laughs> this is the guy who Paul is picking a fight with, right? The guy who Jesus commissioned to hold the keys 
to the church. And Paul stands up in front of hundreds of people and is like, you're a hypocrite. You are wrong. And they have this sort of chat in front of everyone. Can you imagine the tension, right? When the greatest thinker and the greatest leader in the church are standing up and both like going at it in front of all all these people. Uh, But that was the key moment in the beginning of the church. And if Paul had not done that, you would have had Jews be the primary people and Gentiles be second-class citizens forever in the church. And that would not be Christianity. That would not even be what Jesus was preaching. Luckily for us, Peter realized his error right away. We don't have the full details of this, but Peter and Paul went on to have a very fruitful, effective friendship and ministry right immediately after that. They had it before and then they had it after. Uh, and they even ministered in Rome for years together and were both martyred on the same day by the emperor. And so we know that those two got along, that he accepted this rebuke. And we are glad for it because if it weren't for that, there would be no church. Paul here is showing He teaches in Ephesians 2, the second half of Ephesians 2. Uh, He teaches this on race, and he's showing it by rebuking Peter. He says, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Let me just break for a second. This is the greatest racial reconciliation text in the New Testament, bar none. We're talking about, you know, blacks and whites or, or you know, Latinos and Koreans or whoever, whichever groups you want to talk about. I'll continue here. It says, his purpose, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, We both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So here... Paul is actually putting his money where his mouth is, right? And rebuking Peter and holding the actual church to what his writings have been saying all along. And this, though it seems wise to us and it seems good, this was unheard of at the time. This idea that before you'd always had these ethnicities that would always kind of divide themselves in different ways. There were no national groups that, that, transcended boundaries in the ancient world. So this is evidenced by when they start raising money. So the Jewish church goes through this famine in Jerusalem and all the Gentile churches all around the Mediterranean start raising money to then give to the Jerusalem church. And this to us is like, oh, that's nice. That's just sort of like raising money. It's a free will offering. That's just nice that they're doing it. But this kind of stuff absolutely terrified the Roman rulers, because what they're showing is a transnational identity of people who aren't even in the same ethnicity and show no biological shared connection at all. The idea of Greek speakers who don't even speak Hebrew or Aramaic, the idea of Greek speakers raising money and giving that to Jewish people on the other side of the Mediterranean that they had never met, that was completely unheard of at the time. The only thing even close is like if one like Roman army legion was suffering and another one across the empire needed to go help, but they were both sort of answering to the same Caesar. But here you have a kind of unity that transcends race and that transcends family and biology. 
that starts. And that's the first time we have this in human history of people from different ethnicities and tribes all uniting under a kind of single shared God, a single shared uh, concept. So what the church could have been was you have the Jewish church in Jerusalem and then you have these sort of like Greek weird like break off churches that are second uh, sort of second class citizens. And if that had continued, what you would have today is maybe still remnants of some of these churches, but it never would have become this global behemoth of unity of bringing people from different uh, races, classes, economic status into one. One of the things that shocked people the most about the early church is that it was the first time we know of in human history where the most rich, the, the sort of most successful, wealthy, richest, privileged people and the poorest, even lepers, would get together and worship together. So you have Roman senators and you have uh, the disabled and uh, those who are enslaved all studying, or sorry, not studying, uh, all uh, worshiping together. And that is so threatening so threatening if you're the one in power to watch your senators and the the slaves of slaves of slaves all getting together and worshiping. The church could have been this little group of little sects and breakoffs that then just kind of dwindled and lost its energy over time. But instead, largely because of this one moment where Paul stood up and stood his ground, the church ended up becoming the largest institution, the largest shared faith on earth a threat to Rome that ended up turning the world upside down because of this moment where Paul was willing not just to call out sin in the world, but to call out sin in the church. And so I want to encourage you guys that, you know, Paul, his relationship with the Jerusalem church never fully, fully recovered. They, they agreed that he was right, but they never, like, there's a lot of rulers there that never truly loved him after that. You know, it's, it's hard to be confronted like that, although Peter wasn't one of them. I want to encourage you guys that sometimes doing the right thing, sometimes standing true in the gospel means not just standing up to what's unjust in the world. Sometimes it means standing up to people in your own church or in this case, even from the people who planted you, not to be too on the nose. I'm just saying sometimes standing up to those who are your kin, your fellow believers can be hard. Uh, and we've done that sometimes in this church and there's probably reason for people to you know push back on us. But sometimes when you stand up against your brothers and sisters in Christ, it can feel icky. And sometimes those relationships never fully recover. But if it's the right thing to do before the scriptures, before the gospel, it's the right thing to do. Paul shows us here, if he would not have done this, there certainly would be no global Christian church today. But because he had the guts to stand up and rebuke, who seemed to be basically the most important, famous, strong leader in the entire church at the time, because he did that, the church survived. Paul suffered for it for the rest of his life in some ways. He was never fully seen as a a trusted equal. Even though people agreed with him, they're like, "Uh, I don't know about that Paul guy. He causes trouble. Uh." Uh, So I want to encourage you guys that don't wait, right? Don't whisper, don't rumor, don't just sort of sit back and kind of discuss things with other people. If something is genuinely wrong, even if it's from a strong leader, from someone who you would dare not critique, stand up, put your foot down and stand on the truth of the gospel. This is what we learned from Paul. If he had not done this, we would have no church today. So I'm going to close with that. Remember to stand on the truth of the gospel, no matter who is the one who is offending it. Uh, Let me pray to close us. Father, we thank you for the guts that Paul had. We thank you for the grace that Barnabas knew he needed to go on foot to Tarsus to snatch this guy and bring him back. Um, 
And we thank you that when he comes to Antioch, he is the one who is fit to lead and to teach and to usher the church through those first 20, 30, 40 years of racial and ethnic problems. And we thank you that when the, the pressure and peer pressure got too strong for most of the leaders, even Peter, that Paul was able to put his foot down and say, you hypocrite, this is not the gospel. Uh, we pray that we would have just a, a modicum of the same strength and resolve when it comes to standing up for what's right in the gospel. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and lift this prayer up in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Thank you.